All right, welcome to Masterclass Theology. I am Joel, sometimes called Big Rev. We are finishing out the book of Matthew tonight. We have been, oh my goodness. Now that I think about it, looking back at our history, we have been in Matthew for a little over a year. We started Matthew chapter 1 on my 40th birthday. It was almost, and I just turned 41. So, oh, thanks. I'm, I'm, I get it. I, I feel like I'm the oldest person in my world, but I know I'm still a pup. A uh, child, yeah. I get people saying, oh, what I wouldn't give to be 41. Like, yeah, well, fair enough. So tonight we are in uh, the end of Matthew 27, and we're going to finish with Matthew 28. Matthew 28 is not very big. Compared to Matthew 27 and 26, it's very tiny, but it's very powerful. So when we left last week, Jesus was not dead yet. And so we're not going to be surprised when he dies pretty early on in our text tonight. Tonight's class is called Responses. And we're going to be reading about a lot of responses to what's going on in the text. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this evening. I thank you for these men and women who are journeying. And we're completing this leg of the journey in Matthew and God, at times we, we, we've taken very, very broad strokes, and other times we've done really small strokes and narrowly looked at things. And, and God, it's been a pleasure to journey through Matthew and to try to understand it as best we can and put it into practice. God, I pray we'd be challenged and encouraged tonight, and we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. All right, so responses tonight. We are in Matthew 27, and starting in verse 45, and we're going to be 45 to 50. We're going to start with being at the cross. I was singing that, that praise song, that at the cross praise song. We're starting at the cross here. So from noon until three in the afternoon, by the way, I think it's from like the third to the sixth hour. Is, is it say that in your text or is it the sixth to the ninth? Sixth to the ninth. Okay. So for those of you who were not big on the, the, uh, the workday hours of the Roman Empire, I like how the NIV translates it from noon till three in the afternoon. Because the text is going to say, from noon till three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. That should stop anybody that lives. I mean, I suppose there are months of the year like in, in Alaska where you have nothing but darkness. And it's all dark all the time. But from noon till three, that's, that's the most light, lit up part of the day. Guaranteed. That is like the sunlight all-star game right there. So from noon till three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And for people who say, oh, well, that was an eclipse, a three-hour eclipse? Oh, come on. I know when we had our eclipse watching party, you'd be out there for a couple hours getting ready, getting ready, getting ready. But the moment it starts going and you got to put on your special shades or look in that little stinking box thing, it's like, it's not three hours. There's no way. So this can't be a simple eclipsing. This is a three-hour thing. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, and you know, the commentators go back and forth. Was he speaking Hebrew? Was he speaking Aramaic? Jesus most likely was trilingual. In fact, I read an argument that she, he, he, he probably could speak four languages. He had... His lingua franca, the one that, that everybody in his, 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 his people group spoke, was Aramaic. Okay? But he understood Hebrew because he was able to go into the synagogue and read from the scroll. So people in his, in his area, they spoke Aramaic, they spoke Hebrew, and you bet your bottom dollar they all could use Greek 
because the Roman world was Greek. And then at this time, Latin was still was kind of getting its start. So Jesus might have known some Latin. Again, we don't know, but exactly what Jesus spoke. I used to have these dreams where I would go back in time and uh, kind of meet Jesus. And Jesus looks at me in my dreams and goes, really? In English? Really? You know, and thinking, Jesus, you can't speak this language. It's like, God? <laughs> He's like, and like, we're going to the end of our text today. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. It's like, oh, of course he can speak English in my dream. And, uh, but here he's speaking either Aramaic or Hebrew, Eli, Eli, Lemesabachtani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Elijah in Hebrew is Eliyahu. So here he's saying, Eli, Eli, Eli. And, you know, it's possible even if he was speaking Aramaic, he might have been saying for God, Eli, Eli, which, is, which means my God. Because we do this in English, there's a few of us who like to use God's like Hebrew name, Yahweh, and we speak English in our worship to God, but we'll still call him Yahweh, or call him Adonai. It's like, that's not the way we refer to God. But, so it's, it's entirely possible he was speaking Aramaic, and still did the Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, but people are listening to it and saying, oh my goodness, he's calling for Elijah. So immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with some wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus a drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. So at the cross, a Jewish tradition held that Elijah would come to rescue the righteous in their distress. Elijah, remember, he's, he's Bible trivia. He's one of just a few who did not die. If you remember... He, he, he got whisked up into heaven in a chariot of fire. And he, you know, there's just a couple others, maybe only Enoch, I believe, in, in Genesis. And that, is that it? Is there anyone I've missed who, who did not die once? That is, if I understand correctly, but Elijah didn't die. And so there's a Jewish tradition that said, well, the righteous person could cry out for Elijah and Elijah might just come save him. So they hear Jesus saying, my God, my God, Eli, Eli. And the first thing they're thinking is, well, he's not calling his father God because Jesus is a bum. He can't be God. So why would he be calling out to God? Instead, he's calling for Elijah. It made sense in their mind. Jesus is conscious of being, um, well, first of all, darkness equals judgment. Welcome. When darkness happens... See, even back in the, in the 10 plagues of Egypt, darkness is judgment. Now think about this real quick. Darkness covered the land. So obviously, who's being judged here? If darkness covered the land, this land of Israel, Israel, yeah. It's like God is, 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 is showing judgment to Israel. But think theologically for one second. Who else is being judged here? We may not like to think of it this way. Who else is facing judgment? And this is Gospel 101. If he does, he's he's literally being abandoned by God. That right there, as he takes sin upon him, he cries out as a righteous sufferer, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken? Why are you abandoning me?" This would have been the hardest moment of his life. Jesus who, and Jesus got a taste of this in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of the Olive Press, where the olives are being pressed and all the juice coming out, the oil coming out. This is his pressing right here. This is Jesus in that olive press. 
the hardest possible moment of his existence. You know, way back in the beginning, Mary and Joseph can't find him. He's in the temple talking shop. I'm here doing my father's business. From the day one, Jesus had the best of Adam and Eve, who had this awesome, awesome relationship with God pre-fall. Before sin happened, they had this wonderful, intimate, holy thing going on. Then sin wrecks the holy and ruins the holy and you have separation. Jesus never had that separation. He never had the sin. So he had that pre-fall Adam and Eve kind of relationship with God. But now he's also the son of God. So you can imagine exponentially greater and more powerful. And now God is forced to, for the first time in Jesus' life, turn his back. Because sin is now entering their relationship. It's not Jesus' sin. It's my sin. It's your sin. And as Jesus bears our sin, the Bible says, he who was not sin became sin. As Jesus became sin, the Father had to abandon. He had to forsake. It's that Heisman pose, stiff arm kind of thing. He had to. Theologically, it had to happen that way. Otherwise, the Father is welcoming sin into his presence. This is the way that the Father had planned to fully and finally deal with sin. The hardest moment of his life. Yes, sir. We do get the impression in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, 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 was, he was grasping what was happening, what was going to happen. And he was saying, take this from me, God. If, if it's at all possible, take this cup from me. But as you and I all well know, there's a great difference between knowing something's going to happen, and then all of a sudden it starts to happen. And you realize, ah. Oh. So he's calling out in righteous. I don't see him angry here. I don't, I don't see him sinning. He just, he, in this moment, he's fulfilling that psalm. He's calling out like that righteous sufferer. Why have you forsaken me? And in that psalm, I believe it was David calling out to God in his suffering as a righteous sufferer. And here, David's long lost son. Darkness equals judgment. Jesus is conscious of being abandoned by his father. This is not, he's not, he's not sitting here going, what in the heck is going on? No, he knows what's going on. Jesus understands for the first time in his life, he is being forsaken by this very God, this very father. And he understands it. I don't know how he senses it, how he feels it, whatever's going on, what the Holy Spirit tells him. I don't know how. We'll get to heaven one day and we'll ask him what that was, what that was like. How did he know? But, but he knows what that felt like. We got some sour wine and mockery. Again, we discussed this last week. Wine, this wasn't like, okay, wow, I just had a really nice cut of steak and I want to I wash it down with a you know, nice Cabernet or a Merlot or something. No. This wine is meant to tick him off. This wine is meant to not, not satisfy anything. So even when Jesus says, I thirst, and they put that up to his mouth, he's not drinking long of it and going, oh, yes, now everything is all good. No, this is about mocking him. This is about, once again, okay, okay, he's had his little drink. All right, here we go. Now let's see if Elijah's going to come get him. Jesus is sovereign over the time of his death. Notice the text does not say, and then God finally ended Jesus' life. No. Jesus is sovereign. Even over the time of his death. The one who was going to pay our price. The one who was going to ransom himself. The one who was going to be a ransom for many. Gave up 
his spirit. Jesus is sovereign even over that. He's not suicidal. He allowed it to happen. He allowed the enemy to take his life, but he was giving his life. He, al- he allowed the death to happen, but he was sovereign over it. It's one of the great paradoxes of the gospel. Jesus is sovereign. It, it's, it's a paradox that gets us in trouble with the other two major religions, the major Abrahamic religions. How could God, how could God have a son? That means he has to sleep with somebody, so that, that, that cancels us out with Islam. But with Judaism, how could God die? How could the Messiah die? The Messiah is meant to conquer. The Messiah is meant for God to win. How can he die? And so here he is dying. They skip out on the suffering servant. We continue. The immediate impact, 51 to 56. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We do not know. There are two curtains in the temple. There's one that gets you into the holy place and one that gets you into the most holy place. We don't know which one was torn. And they both could symbolize different aspects of this whole thing. If it was the outside curtain, that's the one that everyone would have seen. And they'd be like, oh, wow, something big is happening here. If it's the inside curtain, that really would separate man from God, I guess, literally, in a sense of of where God has chosen to make his dwelling place. But we don't know what, what, what... The text doesn't tell us what curtain was torn, just that it was. There's something going on here that's big. We don't see it yet, but this just doesn't happen. The temple was torn in two, the curtain from top to bottom. Top to bottom, by the way. You can imagine someone working from the bottom to the top and getting a big old scissors and going at it. Top to bottom? Forget about it. You're not getting up there. You're not tearing this thing down. Are you kidding me? But it's torn in two from top to bottom. This is clearly a non-human endeavor here. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. This is something that only with Matthew. A lot of ink has been spilled on this verse. My goodness. They came out of the tomb after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now, so here Matthew is giving us just a moment of this is going to happen. Part of this is going to happen after Jesus' resurrection. So this hasn't happened yet. The earthquakes happened. And it it wrecked the temple complex and it's wrecking these tombs. But something's going on here. Something is, this is not just some random guy dying. He dies, he breathes his last, and all of a sudden, all these things start happening. 51 to 56. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Wow. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I, I, I wrote a, uh, my very first song that I wrote. Um, I think I called it His Eyes or something like that. I, I, it's so long ago. But what I did was this centurion kicked my rear. I didn't understand it. I was like, how does he get to this point? This pagan polytheistic guy, how does he get to this point where he's lived his life and all of a sudden here at the last moment, surely this man was a son of God. And I kind of tried to, to give life and put flesh on those bones and kind of try to figure out what's going on here. And largely all conjecture, but it's trying to wrap my mind philosophically around this guy. Because he is a pagan polytheistic person who 
is probably most likely not a Jew, and so he's not going to believe in Messiah, Son of God equals Messiah in Jewish lingo. So he's, he's looking at this and he's saying, wait a minute, this is abnormal. All this stuff that happens, that has just happened, doesn't just happen. Oh my goodness. At the very minimum, he's like Jonah's shipmates that were like, you've ticked off a god because God's going, a god is going crazy. We got to throw you overboard or something. We got to do something. You have to appease this god of yours. Throw me over. No, don't, I'm not going to throw you over. Do it and it'll appease my god. Okay, we don't want to, but we're going to do it. At the minimum, he's like that, saying, okay, some god's been ticked off because look at all this. But that may not be his entire story. He might just very well be having a moment of faith here. Surely this one was the Son of God. I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But Matthew brings this up, and this is significant. This guy is having a come-to-Jesus moment at the last possible moment to come to Jesus as he's bleeding out on a cross. Yeah, so we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Most likely, the question of the people that come out of the grave. So we're left wondering, gee, did they just wander around in some kind of weird spirit form? Are they going to be like Jesus when he comes back? Are they going to have these heavenly bodies or eternal bodies? Who were these people? Was it like, a, you know, well, obviously not Elijah. He wasn't buried, but maybe like David or some, some of the great faithful ones. Was it Abraham? Who are these holy ones? And we don't know. Matthew doesn't give us that information. I wish he did. I wish there was like footnote after footnote. But we're reminded that they didn't do this until Jesus came back. Yes, he's mentioning it here, because if he mentions it in 28, that's going to like harm the flow. As he describes things, all of a sudden Jesus comes back, and oh yeah, there's these guys. No, the point here is that this earthquake is wrecking the temple and it also wrecks the tombs. So we can see here this idea of the, the symbolizes that are, well, first of all, we'll look at the immediate impact here. The old temple system was rendered obsolete. God chose to attack his temple here. The old, what was the temple? The temple was a dwelling place between man and God. If you were a worshiper of God and you wanted to interact with the holy God, you had to come to his temple. Or way back when, you came to his tabernacle. You offered a sacrifice, and that's how a bum like you or me could interact with the holy God. You had to do that kind of worship his way. You had to come to his temple, and the priests were your mediators to be able to communicate between you and God. And once a year, they got to go into that area where they could come close to the holy of holies to be able to offer this and that. This was God's dwelling place with man. Now, kaboom! That has now been rendered obsolete. Who now, I say who not what, who now is that new temple? Who now is that dwelling place between God and man? We might say, who is that one mediator between God and man? That new temple is in Jesus. That new temple, just logically speaking of what the temple was trying to accomplish between God and man, that is in the person of Jesus. So when Jesus talks about a new covenant, how his body being broken, how his blood being poured out is now the symbol of a new covenant, the old covenant was the sacrificial system and the temple worship. And that's how you worship the holy God. You came that way. And the blood of an animal had to pay your price, etc., etc. You had intimacy with the holy God when someone died in your place and that blood 
was poured out. That's how you had intimacy with God. So now that's been rendered obsolete. That's the symbol here of Jesus dies and all of a sudden the temple is torn in two, that curtain, that separating curtain has now kaboom. God's making a point here about the covenant. There is a new covenant now. And that new covenant is centered around the Son of God, Jesus, who in his body and in his blood are going to accomplish the great intimacy, the great reconciliation between a sinful me and a holy God. And that's how the author of Hebrews can talk about now striding boldly. Now the, the, the curtain's been torn. Now we can stride boldly into his presence. So yeah, the Old Testament system is rendered obsolete. Jesus is the new temple, the meeting place with God and man. More symbols that teach. Sin is dealt with. What did Jesus's? And so to get at your, your question, Dorothy, there's things that are being taught here by these symbols. And in the temple system, your sin is never truly dealt with. It at best is smeared over. A functional relationship is being able to take place. Atonement was kind of like the old days where you would, you would, you would, you would type on a typewriter and then you would make a mistake and you go grab a bottle of whiteout and you put the whiteout over the, uh, the mistake and then you blow it dry then you have a little white smudge there. Then you can type over it again. But underneath that whiteout, that mistake is still there. That's atonement. It's like, it's like you're not really dealing with the sin, but you're making it functionally possible for you to go on again. And so... Sin is being dealt with in Jesus on the cross. So as, as, as God sends this symbol to, to, to kind of wreck the temple, as it were, he's promoting another temple. Sin is being dealt with. Death is being defeated. And we're going to see that when Jesus resurrects in the next chapter. Death will be defeated. And so as a symbol of that, Matthew records other people, holy ones who had died in the faith years ago, resurrect. I don't know why. I don't know what they were doing. I don't know how they did it. I don't know where they went. I don't know if they just kind of faded away. The text doesn't tell us. What the text does tell us is they came out of the graves that were wrecked by an earthquake sent by God as Jesus, the Son of God, dies. And they did so when Jesus was resurrected. They came about then. So Matthew gives us just that information. So we're left to just, just to logically say there's something about their resurrection and the resurrection of Jesus, which is coming next chapter. God's communicating, hey, this new covenant is a different kind of thing. There's actually hope. There's actually resurrection hope. An amazing thing. A future hope. The ironic centurion. Yeah. It's surely this man's the son of God. Yeah. Wow. The irony is this guy gets it. The, the religious elite, they're clueless. In fact, they're worse than clueless. They're not ignorant They're rejecting God. They did the unpardonable sin. They completely rejected God. They're apostates. This, the, the, this nobody centurion, he all of a sudden has a moment. But these other people who should know, they have no clue. The irony of the centurion. Last at the cross, 
first at the tomb. What about these women here? Many women were there watching from a distance. They followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So good old Mrs. Zebedee was there. These women were last at the cross and first at the tomb. When all the other disciples, save one, fled or killed himself, and we read that John was, John was able to be there at the end, but when all the rest of them took off, even brave Peter, I'll never deny you, even if we all have to die, I'll die with you, and he's gone. And here he is. These women, they were there. These girls were last at the cross. Ladies, I can only imagine they're your hero. They're my hero. Last at the cross and first at the tomb. In a world that thought women were just worthless. Their testimony didn't matter. It was like, eh, whatever. You know, a woman said that. She's a woman. It doesn't matter. In a grand patriarchal world that just didn't really care what women thought, God took pains, intentional pains, to make women his all-stars. Jesus was the most uplifting figure in women's history, lifting up women to the place that he saw them, the Genesis 1 place, the in the beginning the creator created them equally male and female place. He loved them without any possible lust in his heart. He accepted their service with, with, with innocence and grace. Wow. He wanted them as his disciples. He per, per positioned them perfectly to be his witnesses. A woman of all things. Yeah. Jesus. Serve God like these women. These women, it looks like they served out of their own means. They went to make sure Jesus was eating. They followed him from Galilee to make sure that Jesus had a change of clothes or Jesus, hey, you know what, Jesus, you haven't eaten in four days. Can we make a brisket or something? Can we, can we get some bread? Can we do something? These are the, everywhere I've gone, I've had mother figures in my life, especially when I was a single guy and in my youth ministry days, I had various moms. I lived with, with families and, and, and the, the moms of that family just kind of just adopted me to this day. Older women seem to really want, they want to adopt me and care for me. These women would make sure that I had eaten. And I'm like, goodness, I, I think it's pretty obvious that I've eaten. <laughs> and I, I performed a service in their house, the women of uh, this household. I, I lived with um, uh, the teenagers in my youth group. I lived with them and their families. And so, um, so yeah, so the, the mom, I remember this one mom, she was like, Joel, you've got a superpower. And that superpower is, will you empty my fridge for me? Because I'm running out of Tupperware. And so she would have me, Joel, would you please empty my fridge? It's a late night, you're doing your studies late at night anyway. Would you, would you work through some of my leftovers? Yes, ma'am, don't have to tell me twice. And I would just go through and start eating things, you know. So that was what I provided for them, and she was totally okay with it. She's like, but she made sure I went to school and I had a lunch. She made, I mean, these women are following Jesus and caring for him from their own means. Serve like these women. No, we don't serve God as if God needs our service. At no point does God need you or me. That is a manipulative relationship where God ceases to be God. He becomes an idol that requires me. No, no, no. But serve with this kind of humility. Serve with this kind of mindset that says, God, I want to give because giving is what I should be doing. I love you. Hey, this is my friend. 
serve God like these women. The nights, 57 to 61, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered to be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. They did not go away. Last of the cross, first of the tomb. According to Jewish custom, based upon Deuteronomy 21, Jewish bodies could not remain on a cross overnight. They would throw a fit. If a Jew got crucified, you had to pull them down. They could not stay there overnight. They refused. They would throw a fit, and the Romans kind of gave in to them. The Roman custom was, let these bodies hang there until they rotted away, or the animals got them. Because crucifixion was all about shame. And nobody wants to die that way, and that's the point. So crucified bodies were rarely buried, and only if the friends or family petitioned the governor. And never in the case of high treason, no mourning was permitted for those executed under Roman law. If Rome executed you, you were not allowed to mourn. You had to take it. So we don't see the women here wailing, as we see in the Gospels when someone's dead, and there's professional wailers and moaners out there at the grave. We don't see that here. They're following along with, with their brokenness, but having to hold it in. So we have... For some reason, what this says about Joseph and Pilate, Joseph had some pull. For some reason, Pilate listened to him. Joseph, I don't know if he had to grease the rails. I don't know what he had to do, but he shows up, and Pilate... Pilate could have told him to go pound sand. But, you know, Pilate, we, we got the impression last week he kind of respected Jesus, didn't he? That if he could stick it to the Sanhedrin one last time, he was going to do it. So here's a disciple of Jesus coming and saying, listen, I've got a tomb for him. I've got a place we can put him. We can do right by this guy. Because nobody's expecting him to come back alive. Are you kidding me? Why would he care so much about a tomb if he was expecting Jesus to come back to life? No. He said, Pilate, I got a place for him, my own tomb. You know, Isaiah 53, he's going to you know, die with, with, with criminals, but be buried with the rich. I don't know if that's on Matthew's mind here, but uh, certainly comes true. And about Pilate, yeah, nobody got to be buried. If, so I guess for Pilate to say, yeah, Joseph, you can take him, it means that, because you only got crucified if you were committed high treason and that was their argument to Pilate He's, he committed treason and so you got to kill him and Pilate okay he did it so someone who's crucified doesn't get to come off the cross and receive a burial so for Pilate to do this kind of tells us that Pilate didn't think this guy was that much of a criminal because Pilate let it happen yes I know all this is happening under the auspices of God's sovereign plan but I don't think Pilate really thought that Jesus was that much of a criminal to begin with. We kind of got that impression last week. So, silent mourning and the faithful witness of the women who saw Jesus buried. By the way, Jesus, it, we, the whole concept of baptism, as we're told, being buried in the likeness of Christ and being buried in our sin or raised in the likeness of Christ... The gospel hinges on Jesus being buried. Not just he died on the cross, he died, was buried, and then rose to life. So the women who are there, 
I realize their witnesses don't matter that much in, the, in their world, but the women who are there are testifying that, yes, indeed, he was buried. He was buried. He has a tomb. As we're going to see, the tomb is not going to be full for long, but he had a tomb. So he was buried, and they could bear witness. Joseph, of course, could bear witness because it's his family tomb. He put out the checkbook and, run, and signed it away. That was a, quite a thing, but, but yet the women were there to make sure it happened. The text says Joseph went away, but the women stayed. Wow. The next day, 62. The next day, the one after preparation day, ooh, Matthew's being coy. In the week, what is the one, what is the day, what is the name of the day that's after preparation day? It's called the Sabbath. Matthew. Oh, the preparation days you prepare for the Sabbath. So the next day, the day after preparation day was the Sabbath. Saturday. For most of the day, Saturday, sundown to sundown. The chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, who are they talking about? That deceiver, Jesus. That deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. Now, they're not coming to Pilate out of belief. Oh, we believe him. We believe him. He's going to rise. Oh, we believe. No, they're coming. To... Exactly. They're, they're not coming to Pilate out of belief. They're coming out of just, it's like schadenfreude. They're coming out and just trying to get something out of him. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Oh, you can just hear the littlest violin being played in the background as they whine. So which is it? You can just hear Pilate. You can just hear Pilate having a cynical response here. You bozos, you're so terrified of him, you had to make me kill him. You're terrified of him while he's alive. Now you're terrified of him when he's dead. Make up your mind. We're going to see this kind of play out here with Pilate. Because Pilate doesn't like these people. He wants to deal with these people as little as possible. He doesn't want to bend over backwards for them. In fact, if he can poke them in the eyes, he wants to. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. <laughs> Notice he's not saying, take some of my legionaries. You know what? I, I've got these temple police. I've got these Roman soldiers that are just itching to, to secure a tomb. You can have them because I love you so much. No, he says, go take some of yours. Go secure it as you know how. Don't bother me with this nonsense. Go take your own police force, which they had a temple police force. These are the ones that are going to drag Paul and they're going to take him in the book of Acts, drag him out of the temple complex and say he was bringing a Gentile into the area for the Jews, the temple police force. And they were very much, had a lot of power, but they, you know, they obviously had to beg for Rome to do what they wanted to do. These are the, the people that were going to be in Gethsemane that were Judas and to be able to get arrest and put your swords away kind of thing. And so Pilate says, go take some of them. Now, I can't prove that. But in the very next chapter, we learn something about these guys. And they don't go running back to Caesar. They go running back to the chief priests. These guards that are going to be shocked to death and fall asleep and faint or whatever they're going to do. If they were Roman soldiers and they have to go back to Caesar or to go back to Pilate and say, yeah, um, uh, yeah, we fell asleep with a job. 
that's basically saying that they, they deserve to die at that point. That is basically committing suicide. If you fell asleep on the job as a soldier, you're dead. You're going to be, you're not going to be crucified because you're probably a Roman citizen, but you'll be, you'll receive the, a swift soldier's punishment, death. But they don't go back to him. We'll see that next chapter. So Pilate has this cynical moment here. Oh, you go take care of it as best you know how, whatever. Because he doesn't want this. So what police? Most likely the temple police, the Jewish police or the Sanhedrin police. Sunday morning, we're, we're finally in chapter 28. Oh, take a guard. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Okay, so the stone's been sealed. The seal would be broken. It would be, a, okay, wow, this is broken. We can see what's going on here, but the seal was posted. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Sunday, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. Another violent earthquake, I might add. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him, they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, don't be afraid, which implies that she was afraid. She wasn't, you know, shaking in her boots and she's going to fall over dead, but don't be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. What an intimate moment that was. They got to go inside there, and I wonder, I, I wonder if they saw the linen that he was wrapped in. I wonder if that meant something to them. When one of my children died, we got to bring home the little... Uh, my, my wife and I lost a baby... And uh, she didn't live for very long, but they kind of wrapped her in this little, like, little, little crocheted pink thing. And then uh, after it was all said and done, we got to bring that home. And every once in a while, we run across it. And it means a lot, especially to my wife, to be able to hold that little crocheted pink little robe thing. And, you know, she shed some tears. And we just, oh, wow, it's, it's, it's a moment. I can only imagine this moment where they see where he lay. And they saw... Well, in the other gospel, it's like they, it was the, the, the linens were neatly folded. I mean, it's like John and Peter had a moment there. We don't have that here. We have the, the, we have the Marys. Wow. Don't be afraid. Come see where he lay. Wow. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. Then you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Chairete, he said, greetings. In fact, if Matthew, if Matthew is correct that he was speaking Greek to them, he most likely was speaking either Aramaic or Hebrew, and uh, he said, Shalom. He greeted them. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Again, they're afraid. Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. They will see me. There they will see me. Wow. Hmm. An ancient Jewish tradition was that mourners visited the tomb until the third day to make sure the deceased was truly dead. We see a version of this tradition was present in the Lazarus story. Because they make a big thing. My Lord, 
he's been dead in the grave for four days. And I guess it was a common knowledge at the time that within days one, two, and three, the spirit kind of hung around the body, and it's possible, theoretically possible, and, and they're kind of their little understanding of, of, of the afterlife, that the spirit could just come back in and he could come back to life again. So they made sure for three days that the one who died stayed dead. So she's hanging out. They're hanging out by the tomb. They're hanging out by the tomb. And they're making sure that that's just what they did. They, indeed, he's dead. Okay. Fair enough. Jesus said in Matthew 26, the angel's telling him this. He said, but after I had risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now, if Palestine, if this area is like the armpit of the Roman Empire, Galilee is like the armpit of the armpit. Nothing good comes out of Galilee. The people were throwing a fit that Jesus came from Galilee, from Nazareth. Nobody comes from Nazareth. Are you kidding me? That's a nobody town, and a nobody place, and a nobody part of the world. But God chose that. Jesus came from Galilee. His ministry started in Galilee. He was going to return fully and finally to Galilee. So go ahead. Go to Galilee. There they'll see me. In a time before computers or movies, could you imagine the scene? I, I don't think computers or CGI movies today could do that angel justice. He was like lightning. Wow. He shows up and people faint until death. What a powerful moment. He shows up and there's an earthquake. This is an angel. Wow. Could you imagine that scene? The women's joy is mingled with fear. It reminds me in the, the Narnia books are talking about Aslan. How's it go again? He's, he's a good lion, but he's still a lion. I mean... Yeah, he's, 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 he's not tame. Yeah, so, so God, so, so when we come before God, we have joy. But there's a reason why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, of knowledge and wisdom. Okay, we just don't take advantage of God. We just don't sit there and go, okay, God, I got you. Here we are. We're going to have a moment here, God. No, he's God and I'm not. I have no business playing games with God, trying to manipulate God, trying to pull one over on God. That was a lot of my life, playing games of God's grace. That's not to be. He's still God. So they have fear here, intermingled with joy. It's kind of a cool thing there. It just really is. They're terrified. But they have joy. Wow. That just, that just speaks to me. Maybe it doesn't speak to you, but it speaks to me. Joy mingled with fear. Again, the uplifting of women, they are twice reassured. They're twice directed. These women had a place in Jesus' kingdom. These women had a place nowhere else, but they had a place in Jesus' world. Go and tell my brothers. They probably aren't going to listen to you because you're a woman, but go tell them anyway. Well, Jesus didn't say that, but that's kind of the assumption. Go tell him. Go tell them. And they do. In the city, 11 to 15, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Again, these, gotta be the, this, these have to be the temple, the temple police force. Because if these were Roman soldiers, the last place they're going to go is, to, is, 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 is to, to, to the Jews. What are we going to talk to them for? But they're certainly not going to tell Pilate they fell asleep. Yeah, how, how is the tomb empty? I don't know. We fell asleep. Really? 
They're dead. Soldiers, get them. Because that's not, we do things with excellence in this army, and that's not excellent. That's exactly the opposite of what I told you to do. No, no, no. Pilate didn't tell him to do anything, did he? He told the Jews, you go take care of it as you see fit. So go get your own boys and go take care of this. So the own boys go back to, to the, the, uh, the Jewish leaders here. The chief priest told them everything that had happened. When the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you're to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Again, they seem to have something on Pilate. We kind of played with this last week. They kind of have something on him. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Who's police? Again, we, we just talked about that. Now, in your page, I've got five quick important things to consider. No, it's not five, it's three. Turn your page over, you can write these down. Three quick things. Remember when Jesus is hanging on the cross and from last week, there are people, bozos out in the crowd with the Jewish leaders walking by going, oh, come down from the cross that will believe in you. Baloney. Dudes off the cross, empty tomb. If there ever was a moment to believe in Jesus, it's here. And they didn't. I told you that kind of person, oh, of God, if you just come through with this small thing for me, I'll believe you forever. No, you won't. Because you'll never be satisfied with these small things. You will then give God one more thing. It's the equivalent of I love you, but. I love you, but has no business in your marriage. Or with your children. Or in any relationship worth a darn. I love you, comma, but. No. No. It's like, oh God, if you just come through for me this one last time, I'll make sure everything is going to be good between me and you. You will not. You are a manipulative so-and-so, and you just want to manipulate God into doing what you say you want him to do. That's all you want to do. Number two, oh, please, oh, please, religious leaders, the cowardly disciples all of a sudden got really brave and came and stormed the tomb and beat away the soldiers and rolled away the stone, and these guys who were soiling themselves to run away from the soldiers who could be found nowhere near this cross, who are tripping over themselves to call curses down from heaven. I didn't know this guy. He, I have nothing to do with this Jesus of Nazareth. Are you kidding me? All of a sudden now, Jewish leaders, they got all brave and they just, please. That goes nowhere. Oh, you'll, you'll just say that that's what they did. They came in the middle of the night and they stole him. And they, 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 they beat you up or they made you fall asleep and they did overpowered you. These guys are weaklings. They're cowards. And all of a sudden, now they got brave? Finally, and this is the most important thing here, number three, and this, this preaches today, the empty tomb is explained. It is never denied. Even to this day, there are many theories about Jesus. Oh, he just swooned. He didn't really die. Or the disciples came and stole him away. Or robbers came and got it. The empty tomb is always explained away. It's never denied. They've got to do something with that empty tomb because it's empty. You've got to do something. You've got to explain it. There has to be some theory because if it wasn't empty, then Jesus would still be there and our religion, our faith, would be a load of garbage. Okay. 
on the mountain. Matthew comes to a close here. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee on the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Ouch. Just let that sink in for one second. Some doubted. Wow. Even if the word doubt there means hesitancy, some were just hesitant. Seeing Jesus in the flesh, it caused some to react with worship, but others were just, wait a minute. Now, I'm not sitting here as their judge. I'm just reporting what the text says. I just find it interesting. I like this. Scripture portrays people warts and all. Not everybody's perfect in Scripture. My goodness, how many times did Peter mess up? I wonder if Peter was one of those that doubted. We get an impression from another gospel that Thomas definitely doubted. It comes his moniker, Doubting Thomas. But we don't get to know who it is. All we know who's not there is Judas, because he's dead. Okay. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Three quick points here at the end. Jesus' resurrection didn't instantly transform men of little faith and faltering understanding into spiritual giants. Just because he did raise from the dead, it doesn't mean the people all of a sudden turn into great theological maestros. They doubt it. That's why some real bozos are in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11, like Jephthah and Barak and Samson. These guys had almost no faith at all. Samson, probably the worst of all of them. But that's not the point. Just like the same Jesus can use whatever's present, whether it be five loaves and three fish or whatever, he can use that to feed a multitude. God is able to use whatever faith is present. And these guys, they struggled in the greatest Christological moment of their life where the dead had come to life just as he promised, they faltered. They, fa- they, they, they theologically fainted here for a moment. Disciple, disciples, disciple. You are a disciple, disciple. I am discipling you right now as we teach God's word. It is incumbent upon you as a disciple of Jesus Christ who is being discipled by God's word and by your church family to then make disciples. The first eyewitnesses, and this is kind of corny, but oh well. The first eyewitnesses would lead to ear witnesses. And that would continue to be ear witnesses. Because all the eyewitnesses are dead. And they have been for thousands of years. All we have left are ear witnesses. As the gospel is proclaimed, we hear it. Faith comes by ear, hearing. All these new, we are all ear witnesses. And yeah, we, we, we were able to read and we we're able to understand, but we're, that's, that's gospel proclamation. I love how Matthew bookends the gospel. Chapter 1, he reminds us that the virgin would be with child and will name that child Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Chapter 1. And chapter 28, he literally ends the gospel with, and lo, I will, Emmanuel. 
I will be with you always. Emmanuel begins the gospel. Emmanuel ends the gospel. God with us. Our marching orders are given. We make disciples not of ourselves, not of the bridge, not of Christian, not of a random church or movement. We make disciples of Jesus. We don't, pre- we don't present our brand as if we're like a Starbucks or a, co- a, a coffee shop or something. We present Jesus. So our no, our be, and our do, for me it is, my no is this. Jesus has complete authority. I need to know that. In fact, that's the idea here. His authority didn't change. When Jesus says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth, Jesus is the same authority that he had when he, when he calmed the waters, when he resurrected Lazarus. That, that, that authority has not changed, but the sphere of influence is now not just here and now, but it is all time, all places, all possible planet, star, universe, galaxy, all authority under heaven and earth. The universe is now at the command of our Lord Jesus. That authority did not change. Its sphere was enlarged. I need to know that he has complete authority. So how dare I not know that and live that way? He's God and I'm not. My be is discipled. I need to be discipled. And the word disciple is a cousin to the word discipline. It's the same Greek disciplos, the same idea there. Discipline and disciple are the same word. Same concept. I need discipline in my life. And it's with that discipline that my duty turns into devotion, turns in to discipleship. Where I've grabbed, I'm, I'm committed with my head, then committed with my heart, and now I'm committed with all of me. That's my B. My do is this. I need to be those women. Those women in our story, I need to humbly serve without importance. Those women served, yeah, their names got in the gospel. Yeah, their names, are, for all time, we've read their names. But they didn't do it for their name to be read. They just served. They served because Jesus called them and they served and they didn't do it to get their name in lights I need to be that a humble I need to do humble service without the importance oh it's easy when we get that attaboy when we get the the boss coming back and saying oh yeah look at you we're nothing without you boy I'm so glad you did what you did because now we can do what we can how about if you're able to serve and not be recognized your treasure be completely in heaven. Your right hand not knowing what your left hand is doing. Wow. If that's you, you've got a good group of women that, are, that is just like you. You're just like them. That's my know, my be, and my do. Book of Matthew is over. Next week, we're going to do this, what I'm hoping is going to be really applicable. We're going to look at my favorite book of the Bible, the book of Ruth. We're going to do some character studies. We're going to pick characters, just like in the Gospels, we've been taking characters in the Gospels and saying, okay, this is me, I struggle like this guy. We're going to go through the character of Naomi, the character of Boaz, the character of Elimelech, the character of, of Ruth. We're going to look at these characters, and we're going to see what makes them them. And we're going to apply it to us. Are you Ruth? Are you like Boaz? 
Are you like Naomi? I got a feeling there's a lot of Naomi's in this room. And it has nothing to do with your age or your gender. It has everything to do with how she viewed God. It's going to be really fun, I hope. I'm really looking forward to the next week. And uh, anyway, God bless you. This has been Big Rev and Masterclass Theology, finishing the book of Matthew. Responses. Thanks for letting me share.